There once was a poor orphan boy who lived in poverty with abusive owners. These owners regularly deprived him, along with many of the other orphans, of the basic necessities needed for life. They would deprive him of food, of water, and of adequate clothing and shelter. And as a result, they would force them into a life of crime for themselves. They would have these orphans steal, lie, cheat, and manipulate just to get by and to serve their own selfish needs. One day, as an orphan boy was out and about making his normal rounds of pickpocketing, he decided to go for a couple that looked very wealthy. However, he didn't realize that the couple he chose were royalty, and they in fact had guards all around him. It was in fact the king and queen of that land. So the moment the boy tried to go up to him to pickpocket them, the guards saw what he was trying to do, and they immediately apprehended him. The penalty for such a crime in that land was severe, especially since it was directed against the king and the queen of that land. However, as the king and queen looked at this boy, they realized his awful predicament. They saw the dirt and the filth upon him. They saw the thin and frail body that he possessed. He was clearly starving and he was barely getting by. And as they continued to look at him, they saw the scars and the marks from the abuse he suffered at the hands of his owners. They saw that the boy was filled with great anxiety, fear, and absolute misery. And so after looking at this boy and seeing his situation, they decided to take pity upon him. And so instead of punishing the boy for his robbery attempt, the king and queen forgave the boy of this very, very serious crime. But more than this, they decided to do something even more incredible. They decided to rescue this boy from his situation altogether. And so they found out where he lived, and they paid the cost to adopt him from those abusive owners. They adopted the boy, and they made him their very own son, along with their other sons and daughters. They made him royalty through no merit of his own. And now this boy is no longer a poor orphan, but now he is a son of the king. As a result, this boy will no longer go back to his former ways of pickpocketing. He will no longer continue to live in the filth that he once knew. For his new parents will teach him how to live as royalty, as a son of a king. They will teach him how to walk worthy of this new calling he has in life. And this story, while not a perfect analogy by any means, serves to illustrate in a small way of what God has done for each and every one of us that are in Christ this morning. Like the poor orphan boy, we too were once lost and without hope. We were dead in our sins, as Ephesians tells us. We were children of wrath and the very enemies of God himself. We committed crimes against the God of the universe, 
as we sought to steal his glory for ourselves. And the penalty for these crimes was indeed severe. It was eternal death and separation from him. But God, seeing our helpless predicament, took pity upon us, and he acted to rescue us from our sad estate. He reached down from heaven through his son, Jesus Christ, and Jesus would come to earth on this rescue mission to save us. He would live a perfect life in our place that we could never live, and then he would die an excruciating death for us on a cross. And it would be in this way that Jesus' blood would ransom us from our abusive owners, sin and death. And as a result of what Jesus has done, we now are sons and daughters of God through faith in his finished work for us and a repentance of our former way of life, our sins against God. So know this morning that if you haven't already come to know God as your father, or Jesus as your Savior, know that this exists for you today as you turn to Jesus and trust him as your Savior. Turn to him because he loves you and he cares for you more than you could ever possibly imagine or think. And then for those of us, those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, know that this good news doesn't just stop, does it? No, because once we are adopted into God's family, there is now a calling on each of our lives. We must learn to walk as children of the most high God of the universe. We must learn to walk worthy of our new identity as his sons and daughters, as citizens of his kingdom here on earth. And so it is this idea of walking worthy that brings us to our text here this morning. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 211. And the main call this morning is then to walk worthy of your gospel citizenship. Walk worthy of what Jesus Christ has made you to be. As we may recall from last week, Paul gives us an update on how he has stood fast under persecution and how his whole life had remained completely devoted to Christ in every respect, even in the face of death. His life serves as an example of how to walk worthy of the gospel. And it's at this point in the letter where Paul then turns from himself to the Philippians. Now it's their turn to follow suit. Now they are to walk worthy of their citizenship in heaven. And so he calls them to do this in verse 27. He says, just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. You could almost say, pay attention to this. If there's anything you get, look here. As citizens of heaven, this is who you now are because of what God has done for you. Live worthy of the gospel of Christ. Be all that you were made to be in Jesus as his citizens. Live with the value systems of Christ, 
with Jesus as your king. As we may recall, the people of Philippi prided themselves in being Roman citizens with all the benefits that came with it, including freedom from many taxes and legal protections. However, that is not what is most important to them, is what Paul is saying. What is most important is that they are not Roman citizens first. They are Christ's citizens here on earth. So live worthy of your gospel citizenship, for this is who you truly are in Christ. So how do they do this? How do the believers walk worthy of this citizenship? As Paul will continue, he will call them first to have fortitude in adversity. Fortitude in adversity in verses 27 to 30. As Paul calls them to live worthy lives of this calling, Paul hopes that whether he ends up seeing them again or not, to hear that they are standing firm in their faith and that they are united together in one spirit and one cord as they contend for the faith of the gospel. This term of contending would have been familiar to the Philippians and it was often used for athletes or, or soldiers who strove together as a team to accomplish a purpose. And so Paul takes this very familiar term of striving together as a team in a common purpose and mission, and he says, you believers contend together in that way to make much of the gospel. And so the believers there then are to contend together. And they do this by standing together, by supporting one another, by working together, and by having each other's backs on the field of battle as a soldier or as a teammate. And it would be in this way as the believers come together and support each other and have fortitude in adversity that they would make much of the gospel. So Paul encourages them then to work in this way side by side with this team mentality while not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is the first time in the book that we hear of any trouble at all in Philippi. But apparently, as we find here, there were opponents of the believers. There were those who were looking to undermine them. Now, as far as who these opponents were, there is a lack of clarity. We're not entirely sure who they are, as some commentators believe them to be Jews and others Gentiles, and perhaps some both. But, my po but, but the point Paul says is that whoever they were, they were opposing Christ. And they were most likely here accusing the Christians in Philippi as being unpatriotic or even as disturbing the peace by preaching ultimate allegiance to Christ. In the words of one commentator, Christians who explicitly define their citizenship and their supreme sovereignty to be elsewhere must necessarily incur the odium of being un-Roman enemies of the public order. And so in their allegiance to Christ, there were those who opposed him. You were to be allegiant to the emperor of Rome above all. 
You were to be in submission to him above all. That's who you look to. He was your sovereign. But as Paul calls the believers here, it would be Christ who is to be their sovereign, not the emperor. And so they oppose these Christians, and Paul tells them, have fortitude in the midst of adversity. Be fearless and unintimidated by these enemies of God, because God is with you. In fact, as they stand together in solidarity, and as they work together fearlessly, he tells us that their endurance will serve as a sign of two things. It will be first a sign of their opponent's coming destruction. And then secondly, it will be a sign of their salvation. This is what he says in verse 28. But it does leave us a question as we read that, right? I mean, how does their endurance, how does their fearlessness signal their opponent's destruction? How does it work as a sign here? As the believers stand strong together, as they have fortitude in the face of death, in the face of enemies, they offer viable proof that God is the one who is sustaining them and empowering them, despite their opponent's best efforts to destroy them. This is the only explanation. And so God's divine empowerment to his people become all the more apparent as they try to destroy their faith and crush the people of God. And in their trying to crush the people of God, the word of God only spreads more and more and more, even as it's done through Paul as he's in prison with the imperial guards. So with this persecution then, Paul is urging them in this great hope. We have the sustaining, enduring hope that God is with us. And as we endure, it signals our enemy's end and of our salvation in the end. Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But then as Paul continues here into verse 29, he, he says something that might be hard for us to grasp here. He says, For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. Paul continues to speak to them and says, You've been granted the gift, really, of suffering. You've been granted the privilege to suffer is the type of idea here. Now, Paul isn't talking about all types of suffering, mind you. He's saying you've been granted a specific type of suffering, the suffering that comes from serving Christ above all. And in terms of suffering that comes as a result of serving Jesus and making much of him, he sees it as an opportunity. He sees it in a small way as a good thing. He doesn't see this kind of suffering as a bad thing, and he doesn't see it this way for at least a couple different reasons. For one, Paul sees that through suffering for Christ, believers come to be like Christ. They receive the blessing of being conformed more and more to the likeness of Christ as they go through the fire. They are refined. And so they count it a privilege and joy to become like the one who saved them. So he rejoices in this type of suffering and he counts it a grace 
because it makes us more like Jesus. But then he also sees this type of suffering as a privilege because it puts the gospel on display for all to see. Your suffering for Jesus, because he is everything to you, puts the gospel on display for all to see. In the words of one commentator, he says, persecution is a parable that puts the death and resurrection of Christ on display again and again. Persecutors tried to kill the faith of believers like they tried to kill Jesus. But faith rises just like Jesus did. And when persecutors try everything in their power to kill faith, but faith refuses to die, resurrection power is on display. Opponents should fear because they are actually fighting God and they will lose. So as a result of persecution and in the face of adversity, life is spread to others and our hope in our salvation only increases. So this doesn't mean that we go out and we look for persecution. We don't do that. But Paul says, if and when you are persecuted for Christ, you can count this as a good thing. For God will use our suffering for good even as he would do with Joseph, and more importantly, how he would do for Jesus for us. Now, while many of us here this morning aren't experiencing this level of persecution, we do know that there are believers all around the world who are going through this exact type of persecution. They're dying for the faith. They're being torn apart for Jesus. And as we read what Paul writes here, it truly does give each of us a way to pray for our brothers and sisters across the world who are persecuted for their faith. We can pray for those who go through severe affliction, that they would walk worthy of the gospel of Christ and so have fortitude in the midst of adversity. And so the next time you're wondering how to pray for those who are undergoing severe persecution, pray these words in verses 27 to 30. Pray that they might stand firm in mind and spirit, that they would contend for the faith and so walk worthy of Christ. And in so doing, find comfort that their endurance evidences the reality of their salvation and the certain doom of God's enemies. So Paul calls us then to have fortitude in adversity and so walk worthy of our gospel citizenship. But then he calls us to have humility and unity. He calls us to have unity through humility. So we turn our attention then to chapter 2. Paul begins this section then with a set of if clauses based in Christ. If, 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 if. And now these clauses aren't hypothetical. They are indeed true. And they're meant to build a case. And so, since it's Mother's Day here today, I'll just give an example. A mother might ask her child. She might say to a child who leaves their clean clothes on the floor, "Uh, did I buy these clothes for you? Child's going to say, of course, yes. Did I wash these clothes for you? Again, of course, yes. Did I fold these clothes for you? 
again, yes. And then, of course, she might end with something like, then is it too much of me to ask you to put them away? Is it too much of me to ask you to to clean up after yourselves? And so Paul here in chapter 2 is doing something of the sort. He's building a case for them to have unity together. And so he says, if there is encouragement in Christ, and there is. If there is consolation of love, that is, if there's any comfort of love that comes from Jesus, if there's any fellowship with the Spirit, that is, any common interest or partnership from being in the Holy Spirit, if there's any affection and mercy, which is a deep care and concern that comes from Christ, if there are any of these things in Christ, which of course there are, and you are in Christ, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united together in spirit and intent on one purpose. In the case that Paul builds here, he calls them then to have unity together in Christ. Think the same way. Be united together in one spirit and purpose because this is what is yours in Jesus. And what we see here in Paul's call is not only does he find great joy in the gospel being proclaimed and being accepted, but he finds great joy by the gospel bearing the fruit of unity in believers. His joy is made full as the gospel draws the believers together in unity from all walks of life. And so our joy as well should be made full as we see the fruits of unity from the gospel. For in unifying around the gospel of Jesus Christ, despite our diversity, despite our differences, we show the immeasurable beauty and wisdom of God in the gospel. We show the gospel together to be the supreme treasure that it is. And in unifying around the gospel, despite our ages, our ethnicities, our occupations, our hobbies, our political bent, and so forth and so on, we show how great and powerful the gospel is. It can unite people who have nothing together except for their love of Jesus. So it is my hope that as this church continues to really grow in the gospel, in Christ, we would do so in such a way that our unity makes much of the gospel. So as Paul calls the church toward this end, he then begins to target that which causes disunity each and every time. Pride and self-regard. If unity is to exist in the body of Christ, then pride and self-regard must die. And so Paul comes out and he says it right away. Do nothing then, out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. If true unity is to exist in the church with all the diversity that we should have, then there's no room at all for selfish ambition or a conceited heart. Now this is a problem. This is a very big problem. Because the reality is for each and every one of us here this morning in this room, Our hearts gravitate naturally 
towards selfish ambition and being conceited. The reality is we all want glory. We all want to be important. We all want to be recognized for our noble character, traits, and skills and abilities. We are to the core of our beings prideful, and we want to be recognized for how great we are. Our hearts are bent towards selfish ambitions and conceit. And as a result, if this is left unchecked, it will breed disunity 100% of the time. And if our hearts are focused on ourselves as the greatest thing, which it often tries to do, we cannot make much of Christ or the gospel. And so this is why Paul calls them then to humility over and against selfish ambition and conceit. Instead of being full of yourself, in humility, count others as more important than yourselves. And in humility, look not to your own interests, but rather to the interests of others. And so true humility then from Paul tells us that humility doesn't draw special attention to oneself. Nor does it walk around thinking people should pay special attention to you for who you are or what you've done. Humility is also not a pathetic lack of self-esteem or something like that. But instead, true humility considers others' needs as more important than your own. It is oriented selflessly towards the good of others rather than the self. True humility reflects a dependence upon Christ above all. I think mothers really do portray, in a large extent, a wonderful example of what humility looks like. For mothers often do a thankless job for caring for children day in and day out. And they act toward the best interest of their children, even when their children couldn't care less. Nevertheless, mothers continue to give themselves over and over and over again to the good of their children. And they'll do this without acknowledgement or recognition. And they'll repeat this process for days, weeks, and months as their children thrive under their watchful care. Mothers in humility carry out their responsibility, really, with no regard for themselves. And they'll do this for their child because they love them. Only years later, of course, will that child begin to understand how fortunate they are to have a loving, caring mother. And so in a similar way, here this morning, we are all to have this type of selfless attitude with one another. We are to selflessly give for the good of each other as we love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And in so doing, as we walk in humility, as we consider each other's needs as more significant than our own, which is terribly hard to do, we can find unity together. So we find unity together then through humility. But then there's the question of humility. If humility is a crucial ingredient to unity, and it cannot exist without humility, how in the world do we ourselves gain humility? How do we 
gain humility so that we can have unity. The first way I want to encourage you is to by cultivating a heart of thanksgiving. Where there is a heart of thanksgiving, it is hard to be bent towards pride because you are thanking God and others rather than focusing on yourself. So if you aren't already a thankful person or if you recognize a lack of gratitude in your own heart, I encourage you on the regular, when you are feeling discontent, when you are feeling miserable, turn your eyes to what you have in Christ. Create a heart of thanksgiving by thanking God for what you have. Make a list if you have to and regularly reflect on what God and others have done for you. And then secondly, as we seek to cultivate humility in our own hearts, we look to Christ. Someone once asked Martin Lloyd-Jones a question much like this, how do I gain humility? And his answer to the question is that I have no method or technique. I have no method or technique. I can't tell you to get down on your knees and believe in prayer because I know you will soon be proud of that. There's only one way to be humble, and that is to look into the face of Jesus Christ. You cannot be anything else when you see him. That is the only way. Humility is not something you can create within yourself. Rather, you look at him, you realize who he is and what he has done, and you are humbled. The path to true humility, then, is to gaze upon Christ. And that's exactly where Paul takes us in the final part of this letter. Paul takes us to the engine and, and the fuel that drives humility in each and every one of us so that our self-regard might die and that our unity might exist together. So we come, then, to one of the most important passages on teaching us who Jesus is. And along with this passage are countless pages of scholarly writing. Concerning this passage, one commentator says, students of this passage, verses 6 through 11, can become so bogged down in the details of scholarly hypotheses and counter-hypotheses about form, origin, and the meaning that little energy remains for clarifying how it serves Paul's own arguments. It's very easy here to get caught in the weeds. And so where we can get bogged down, our goal is to capture what Paul is saying about Jesus in the context of his argument. And that is, if we are to have true humility, we must look to Christ, see him for who he is and what he's done, and in so doing, be humbled. So right after calling the Philippians to consider each other as more significant than, than themselves, he calls them, to adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. And really, this is the same attitude that each and every one of us here this morning must have, the mind of Christ. So how do we have the same mind of Christ? Well, we look at who he is first. Paul tells us, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. We must first understand that Jesus is God. He is very God of very God. 
He is the one who is rightly exalted above all as the ruler and creator of all things. He is equal with God because he is God. And yet, though he is God, the most beautiful being in the universe, he didn't see his status as something to be wielded for self-gain, though he rightfully could have. If anyone in the universe could have done this, it would have been Jesus. And yet he did not do it. He didn't exploit his status for selfish gain. But what did he do instead? Instead, he emptied himself by, forming the, by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. Rather than exalt himself, Jesus emptied himself. And we have to be careful here, for Jesus didn't empty himself in terms of subtraction. He didn't empty himself in terms of losing his deity, as some suppose. No, Jesus here emptied himself by adding humanity with its limitations. He emptied himself by becoming like us by experiencing hunger, pain, suffering, and the weaknesses of flesh. Though he had everything, he made himself like us. And that is a major step downward. That is humbling. That is humility. Our eternal, precious Jesus, who from eternity past needed nothing, willingly subjects himself to the limitations of flesh. And so just as an Olympic sprint athlete would be limited by tying himself to a slower person in a three-legged race, so Jesus emptied himself by taking on humanity for us. And so he would descend from his glorious throne above to live in a frail body of flesh to be born in a lowly manger, to a humble family, so that he might serve us. But the story gets even more amazing. The God who descends to us descends even further. And he does this by humbling himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is truly unthinkable. And it totally separates Christianity from any other religion out there where God becomes man to save us by dying for us. And not just dying for us, but dying in the worst imaginable way possible by crucifixion. Crucifixion was reserved for the lowest of low. It was for the worst criminals that ever existed. And very few actually experienced this terrible punishment. But in the words of Cicero, the most cruel and abominable form of punishment and a shocking and offensive topic unsuitable for polite conversation is crucifixion. And yet Paul reminds them and us that Jesus our King humbled himself to the point of this kind of death, the death of a cross. He descended from the glories of heaven into the depths of hell to save us. 
because he did this, because Jesus humbled himself in complete obedience, God didn't leave him dead on the cross. No, God honors Jesus, and he's greatly exalted him. So that at the name of Jesus, on that last day, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so because of Jesus' humiliation and volunteering to suffer as he did in obedience to the Father, he is now exalted. And he will be exalted by all one day as the supreme ruler over all living things. All people will pay respect to Jesus. All people will acknowledge his rule and reign. And for those of us who are walking worthy as citizens of his kingdom here on earth, this is really glorious news. But for those of us who are persecuting God's people, terrifying news. So Paul, in an effort to lead us to have the same mind of Christ, filled with humility and selfless service for the good of others, points us to Jesus himself. Look to our humble Savior. Look to our God and follow him. Humble yourself just as Jesus did. Humble yourself as you see how Christ walked in humiliation to save you. Because if our Savior, who had all rights to everything on this earth, did that for us, how can we ourselves not do that for each other? When we realize the voluntary descent and humiliation that Christ went through for our salvation, how can we not follow in his footsteps? And so as we contemplate what Jesus has done truly for us, it leaves no room for pride or selfish ambition. For as we see what Christ went through for us, we must work to glorify him who died for us and rose again. And so rather than make much of ourselves, may we truly follow Christ's example here. And then just as Jesus left it up to the Father to glorify him, so we must do the same as well. And so until that day, when God does glorify us, may we walk worthy of the gospel by following him and submitting to him all the days of our life. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen again. We are astounded that he would humble himself in such ways so as to save us. And yet, Lord, we ourselves are so often unwilling to humble ourselves for the good of others around here. So even as we see Jesus and how there was nothing beneath him that he wouldn't do for the Father, may we ourselves have the same mind of Christ. And so consider one another as more significant than ourselves. And so have unity together around the gospel and make much of you to the glory of your name. And we pray this in his name. Amen.